Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today's show has a music touch to it. I speak with Michael Mulligan, author of the recently released The Official Christmas Number One Singles Book. And also Maylie Evans speaks with Matty Neves for a new jazz title, We Jazz. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, let's talk about Christmas number ones. It's a national obsession in the United Kingdom, and a new book explores the trivia and the fascination we have with the chart. Author Michael Mulligan is a chart aficionado, and it was a pleasure talking to him about Christmas number ones. Michael Mulligan, you just wrote an amazing book, the official Christmas number one singles book. I mean, let's talk about the beginning, Michael. When did you become actually addicted to charts as well? Because that's something I can relate very much. Okay. I was born in the Beatles era, and I think there is probably a band for every decade who are infectious. And for my age group, it was undoubtedly the Beatles. I have an older brother and an older sister who would turn on the radio in the morning and you'd hear the chart show. I was one of these people who was so thirsty for knowledge. I'd start buying the music press when I was about 10 years old. And here in the UK, we had Melody Maker, New Musical Express, Sounds, Record Mirror, and my pocket money would go on all of these. And I hadn't heard of half of the bands in there. But I had a little notebook and I'd write down the names of the bands, A to Z, and I'd be thinking, I'm going to learn about them one day. I'm going to learn about one day. And sometimes I'd get the name of the album and the name of the artist confused, you know, so I'd have all these little errors in there. But that, that really was the germ of it. And then I can remit, I bought my first 45 RPM single in 1971. It was Schools Out by Alice Cooper which was a number one single, of course. That's a good one, actually. That's a good one, yeah. And I can even tell you where I bought it and how much I paid for it. But it, it started this, this love and this passion, particularly of, you know, whilst I may enjoy streaming, and it's a great way to access 100 years of music, or if, if not more, I do love the physical products and I still love 45 RPM singles and, and CD singles and albums. So, yeah, it's a passion that's never left me. But it's so true, the physicality as well. I, I, and I think it's still there. A lot of people, I mean, look at the sales for vinyls and, and everything. And I, and I do miss that because I think streaming, and, and to be honest, I'm, I don't think necessarily streaming can be good for artists. Sometimes you just look, there, only the main artists are there on the Spotify lists. And it's quite hard actually to discover new music. I don't know if you agree with me on that. When I started doing research for this book, The official charts started in 1952. So I had to look to see what else was happening in 1952. And if you wanted to buy a radiogram, which was uh, a huge record player with wireless radio in it, in a large wooden cabinet, you know, like a small sideboard or a wardrobe even, it cost about 200 pounds when the average wage was eight pounds. Wow. So you imagine the investment that people were going to make just to buy a record was enormous. And now we turn around and say, speaker, play me the Christmas top 10. 
And that's, you know, maybe our investment stretches that far. And the cost of a phone doesn't compare to investing two years' salary in something to play your 78 RPM single as they were in those days. Well, let's talk about Christmas Top 10 and about your book as well. Thank you. Tell us about, I mean, since I moved to the UK, you know, I became enthralled as well. This country has an obsession about who is going to be the Christmas number one. I don't see any other country having the same expectation. And I think that's why we deserve a book like yours. Thank you. It is very strange. And there are two recurring themes in this country every year. One is, will it snow on Christmas Day? <laughs> and the other is, who's going to have the number one single? And curiously, the bookmakers, the, the bookies or the online betting sites... They take odds on these things. Now, can you think of any other occasion, even in the UK, when people will say, I'm going to bet on what's going to be number one single this week. And yet it's commonplace every Christmas and it becomes newsworthy. So the news websites, the broadsheets, the press will all pick up on it. Who's going to be Christmas number one? It's a huge source of speculation. Now, it, it might be because our chart doesn't rely on radio play, so it's fairly different in that respect and it doesn't have a separate festive holiday Christmas chart so we allow all the old ones to come back year after year which is something a bit special but then something else which I've been pondering on is why do artists established or new want to record a Christmas song so you know this tradition's been going on for as long as the chart has and it could be that they say to themselves hang on I'm feeling really festive in the middle of May if I record a Christmas song now, it'll be number one for Christmas, or could it be the manager turns around and says to them, you know, this is a really good source of revenue and it keeps coming back year after year. It's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, so, so, so maybe it's a festive feeling, maybe it's purely money driven. I don't know, but it just keeps on happening. And, and really it doesn't matter. Can you, can you look at a, a Christmas hit and say, oh, that's really nice. That's really festive. Or can you look at one and say, ah, oh, they only did that for the money. It doesn't matter if they're great Christmas songs, they're great Christmas songs. I mean, if it's well-crafted, we, we really don't care in a way. <laughs> I, I like the fact that in 1973, 74, Wizard, I wish it could be Christmas every day. It actually starts with the sound of a till of a cash register ring. <laughs> And you think, yeah, I think they knew what they were talking about. I mean, look at the charts last year. I mean, they were, they were there, right? They're always yes, kind of... absolutely. Yeah. Although Wizard's a very strange one. It's only been back in the top 40 once. So you get all these ones like Slade and Mariah Carey and Wham, which come back year after year. And yet, curiously, Wizard's not one of these ones that's on repeat all the time. One thing that is fascinating, look at all the number ones, which are very kind of well represented in your book. The variety of artists, of course, from Al Martino, but look at the 80s. You had Human League, Pet Shop Boys. I mean, some of my favorite bands are in there. You have it's Spice Girls. It's, it's amazing. I, I'm glad you touched on the Pet Shop Boys because their hit was part of an Elvis Presley tribute program to celebrate oh. the 20th anniversary of the death of Elvis. So it wasn't as if they said, hey, we've got to get this out for Christmas. And originally it was just going to be a B-side. I think they released it in Japan as a single first and it got a good reaction there. So they thought, okay, we'll do something with this. And then you take something which we now regard as a pop classic like the Human League. And that was 81. And either side of that, you have St. Winfred School Choir with There's No One Quite Like Grandma. <laughs> and then you have Rene and Renato with Save Your Love. So this is a piece of classic pure pop in the middle of two 
completely different hits. And that also begs the question, so who buys, are there people who just say, I must go and buy the Christmas number one single? Because do we really think that the same people bought Rene and Renato has bought the Human League. It's, it's a curious situation. And it's also kind of, you look at the culture of a country in a way. For example, just look at here in the UK. There was a period where only the X Factor winners were number one, which to be honest for me was quite a little bit of a boring period because it was almost expected. There was no, the, the element of surprise was not there. But I think that changed in, in the more recent years, right? There was a very specific period. It did a little, but let's go back to, you know, the point we came in on at the beginning. Is there any other time of the year when people would be motivated to create a campaign to stop a record getting to yeah. number one? And that's what we had with Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. They wanted to stop one of the X Factor. And I, you know, unless we have something, a Blur versus Oasis kind of battle all over again, I, I can't see that level of attention outside of the Christmas period. Absolutely. I mean, sorry for the question, but do you, okay. do you have a favorite uh, Christmas number one? I mean, I had to ask this question, right? Uh, it's a, it's a tricky one. I have, I have several favorites um, and I think they represent the different strands that we have been looking at. Uh, and the first one that came to my attention when I was compiling this was Winifred Atwell, Let's Have Another Party, which was right back in 1954 and it's unique because it's the only instrumental Christmas number one. So you think, okay, it's got the word party in the title and it's very jolly and it's very happy, but you know, it, maybe because it was a medley of well-known hits, even though it's an instrumental, maybe people still sang along. So I love that. Obviously a huge fan, admirer of Band-Aid, which, do you know, that was the first charity record to get to number one. And since then there have been 50 more charity number one singles and about eight of the Christmas number ones were charity singles as well. So again, that not only does it take us from favorite, but it also what motivates people to make records and what motivates people to buy records. Because actually, although we, you know, we look at the X Factor hits and say, well, they were a bit manufactured. They all had charity records as well, or they all had charity angles. So we might look back on them now and say, not the best record I've ever heard. But they serve the purpose. Exactly. There's, there's, a, there's another lovely little charity angle as well. The last three years have been dominated by Lad Baby. Yes. They have an absolutely perfect official chart career. They've had three hits and they've all been number one, which is an extraordinary record. The only other time it's happened is with Robson and Jerome, who had three hit singles and they were all number one singles. Never had another top 40 hit. And you've got to think that's a perfect body of work. Yeah, Robson and Jerome, they're a very curious case. I mean, I was doing some research on that. I, I mean, I'm not a big, the biggest fan, but it's, it's quite an interesting how successful they were. But again, isn't it much like the X Factor, whereby it's extraordinary what 12 hours of free television advertising can do for your career? You know, so they had this uh, Soldier Soldier TV program, which put them in front of everyone week after week. And all of a sudden they perform a hit associated with the program. And if people go, I recognize these characters, I've already invested, you know, an hour every week for the last 12 weeks, I might as well go and buy the record as well. And Michael, I have a question, but this is more about the charts in general. I don't know, sometimes I even have an argument with some of my colleagues because people love saying, oh, the charts in the past used to reflect more. Now it's just about streaming, but in a way they still serve a purpose, I think. Oh, absolutely. You can definitely kind of have an idea of what the country is listening. I think they're still very much relevant in a way. What do you think? 
I agree entirely. I think there's there's a slight there's a slight loss in so far as we no longer buy music as a gift, or much less so. So something like there's no one quite like grandma. So Winifred School Choir, I bet that half the sales in Christmas week were grandchildren buying it for their grandmother. And so we're not going to have people saying, I'm going to stream this for my grandmother this year, you know. So uh, that won't really help. But isn't it the pattern that every generation has to say, oh, it's not like it used to be, about the music of the generation before? And if if the current generation loved the same music as me, then the charts would be a very boring place. So, you know, Good luck to young people discovering all this brilliant new music for the first time. I'm delighted for them. I'll be actually tuning into the Your Tip from 1954, which I, I haven't heard it before yet. I have to mention that one of my favorite Christmas number ones, 96, I think To Become One is a beautiful track by the Spice Girls. You know, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think it was for its moment. I love it. Um, and obviously the second act to have a trio of Christmas number ones after the Beatles and before Lad Baby. So we'll throw that little bit of trivia. <laughs> exactly. there. They're together with Lad Baby. And the book is amazing. Also, what can we expect from the charts this year? I know you're not a futurologist, <laughs> but, you know, it's... I think the pattern is set whereby it will be driven by social media. And that could just be the quality of the advertising that the labels or the artists bring to social media. It used to be the case around the X Factor time that if you could be on the final of Strictly Come Dancing, that was the big program before Christmas and that would really help you to number one. But I think in the last three or four years, we've seen people motivated much, much more by social media. And, and again, you know, Lad Baby, I don't suppose... Lad Baby as a collective family took themselves too seriously as in terms of musical terms, but they were raising money for the Trussell food banks, you know, and so what they did and how they motivated people to buy their record was quite extraordinary. What's quite telling about their records is they went from number one to number 91 the following week because people instantly stopped streaming just like that. Whereas, you know, if you were Pink Floyd with another brick in the wall, you still had some sales after Christmas. So it's even very, Mariah, you know. Exactly, but it's very dramatic and very pronounced. You know, people singles would hang around. It, it was quite commonplace for Christmas hits to still be in the chart in January because they would still be sitting on the shelves in the shops. But now when you can, you think, do you know what? I've had enough of that. You can change your mind and your mood instantly and move on to something else. So what will be number one this year? I genuinely don't know. And that's what makes it so exciting. That was Michael Mulligan there, author of the official Christmas number one singles book. The book is out now. And now, We Jazz Magazine is a new publication from the Helsinki record label and festival of the same name. Intrigued by their first issue titled World Galaxy after the legendary spiritual jazz album from Elise Coltrane, Monaco's Maylie Evans caught up with the creative director, Matty Neves, to find out more. So We Jazz, from my understanding, is it's a collective, it's a record label, it's a record shop, and you also run an annual festival, of which I think it's the eighth edition happening later this year. So why start a publication? This kind of stuff uh, is something that's really close at heart for me personally. I mean, I, I've been uh, writing for various publications before and doing radio shows for some years now, and there's other people uh, connected to We Jazz 
doing similar kind of things. So sharing what we find in the music is really important to us. I mean, that comes with the albums, naturally, that we release. I mean, we're sharing music that we find and that we develop, but also doing articles and, you know, trying to make the field of uh, music journalism a little bit richer, I think. Everybody's talking about how magazines are dwindling down and like there's less and less magazines, especially print magazines, you know, even online publications talking about the music. So I I think there's definitely room there for additions. And I I think that's what we felt that we want to try something like this. And also for me as an artistic director of We Jazz and as a graphic designer, I, I think it's really fascinating to do the do the magazine without like a really fixed setup. We actually started a tabloid magazine some years ago, which was more connected to the WeJazz Festival, and we kind of like uh, had some fun around that. And you know that was a free, freely distributed publication. But now we felt that you know there's a need to do something new here. Also, as a graphic designer, I wanted to have a different kind of material for the magazine and different kind of format because you know tabloid magazine and newspaper print it's pretty narrow in terms of the graphic ideas that you can uh, fully execute so having brighter colors and having more kind of options for the graphic design was really inspiring for me and then also try and think about uh, writers from outside of our immediate circles here in Helsinki that could be part of this. Where have you been drawing inspiration when it comes to the graphic design, when it comes to sort of figuring out the format? Where are your reference points or what were you looking at in terms of getting the feel or setting the right tone, I guess, for the publication moving forward? I think my inspirations come a lot from, uh, you know, visual arts and, you know, the world of design at large. For my taste, many, many music publications have excellent content, but sometimes their design... A view is a lot different than what I'm enjoying in magazines that are more in tune with the visual arts and, you know, design world. So I kind of wanted to bring those together. I feel that there's more to do, you know, in terms of magazines in music and how, how to develop those visually. And also to use quite a lot of illustration. I think that's important for me as well to work with illustrators and uh, to have their ideas there to play around with. At large, the world of you know independent publishing is really inspiring. And when I go to places like Do You Read Me in Berlin, for example, I'm always so excited to see what's happening in the world of magazines. And I really love the format of you know periodical magazines in telling stories and in conveying graphic ideas. And I think those um, magazines that I enjoy they transcend time as well so they're not like really so up to speed only with what's happening right now and only valuable as uh, kind of like historical documents but they have their value which is echoing through time just similarly as in records for example i mean you know a good record is forever a good record (laughs) and that applies to magazines i think as well so i'm often going back to my old magazines that i picked up you know from wherever and just like admiring the beauty of their layout and like going back into the stories and that's what i enjoy and i I hope that this magazine could be something like that for the music lovers at least Now, this first issue is called World Galaxy, so it's taken its title from 
the sixth solo album from Alice Coltrane. So I just wondered, how are you deciding who's featuring for each cover story? And do you have a long list of the bigger figureheads of, of the genre that you've kind of got ready to go for the next couple of issues? Or what's been your approach in deciding who gets that wonderful front cover? I haven't really drawn out a plan for that, to be honest. And actually, just like we're now doing the second issue, which is uh, coming out in a couple of months. And we're kind of like still figuring it like, hey, should this be the front cover story? And I think that's interesting because, you know, the name of the magazine changes with with each issue. And I, I think that's a challenge for us also to... Um, be creative with what's happening with the cover story and uh, part of the idea is to tell stories about artists like you know Alice Coltrane or maybe John Coltrane or Miles Davis or whatever Sandra but part of it on the long run I hope that will also help us to highlight new artists and highlight their work and you know it's not going to be only uh, famous dead people on the cover <laughs> so so uh, I, I think you know establishing the readership and the interest for the magazine is really useful to have these kind of names that echo uh, long and wide with the music audience but going forward I, I think that's going to be something that I'm focused on is to give new artists that kind of shot and that kind of like boost in their thinking of what they're able and and um, give illustrators some challenges with new artists and you know that that kind of thing i haven't really thought about this beyond issue number two so i'm pretty uh, spontaneous in what comes into the magazine and also in terms of the stories i think it's fun to kind of just improvise a lot of things you know i I just had a conversation you know one hour ago with an artist and you know he was talking to me about how his ideas of touring are you know shifting after the pandemic and what's possible and how that affects his touring setup uh, as a musician and you know immediately i I asked if he would like to write a piece about that you know so I, i i think that's how I want to develop the magazine, like uh, with this kind of hobbyist attitude, even though we try to do it to the best of our abilities and have a professional, credible magazine, but still with this kind of zine ideas, you know, just popping up. How does that time frame work for you, like having, I guess, the room to breathe to really sort of consider what's going in? What made you decide to to go for this kind of release pattern and what has that allowed you to do in terms of pulling it all together? Making a magazine or making a record or what, whatever, I, I think for me personally, at least, I need hard deadlines, which are even too hard sometimes, <laughs> require a lot of work in the middle of the night because... We had kind of this idea that since the magazine is now not tied to a festival or anything taking place, we can just, you know, see when it's ready and then put it out. But in the end, you know, the timeline was so elastic in a way that I had to just say, okay, now let's crunch this and, you know, put it out there. So I think we will see what the right timeline is. I mean, we've been thinking about how should this work with sub- subscriptions, for example. You know, I mean, there's always annual subscription of, of a magazine or whatnot. So I, th- I think what we are trying to achieve is some kind of predictable rhythm 
uh, kind of regular rhythm, but still not tied to, you know, this and this many issues per year. So I, I think if there's any subscription model, for example, it's going to be like the next five issues type of thing. So I, I, I think that's something that I kind of want to keep this freedom of deciding when the magazine is ready. My initial idea was to have like two magazines per year only, but now already I'm thinking maybe we could make three or four next year because it's so much fun and, you know, the response has been so great. And, you know, I, I think that's something that you can't really predict. So I didn't have that much expectations, to be honest. I just kind of wanted to see how it goes with the first magazine, but we sold out really quick and, you know, immediately started to do the next magazine. So it definitely exceeded my expectations in all fronts. And that gives me an idea that maybe we should do it more often <laughs> than, than not, especially now with record industry being really in a tough spot and the vinyl industry, especially. So, you know, manufacturing vinyl is so slow these days and doing the magazine felt like a breath of fresh air now for us. how global the outlook is and you know you go from New York to Berlin to Accra I assumed that, that would be quite sort of Scandinavian jazz that would be the focus but actually you guys are throwing open doors looking at the genre in in quite an exciting way I mean how important was it for you to be looking outwards and to kind of bring in all these voices rather than focus on what's happening right on your doorstep it's very important. Of course, I also want to read about that. So I, I want to know what's happening. And it's it's very important to know scenes that we haven't heard of or artists that are new to us. And uh, even if they are, you know, artists that have been making records for a long time, for example, or just new artists coming up. So that's very, very important. Even though the organization that we run, the label that we run is called We Jazz, it's, it's the magazine is not meant to be strictly a jazz magazine, so there's going to be overlaps into other genres of music and maybe even like other <laughs> topics uh, related to visual arts or whatever. And we try to find these links between different domains of life and culture, and uh, I think that journey is just beginning. And of course, it's natural to start from where you know what's happening, so in that sense, this first issue was really uh, jazz-oriented. And also the next issue is going to be largely jazz-oriented, but I, I think it's going to be opening up slowly more and more, still keeping mostly the focus in uh, creative experimental music and jazz music. Um, but yeah, I would love to know even more about stuff happening in places that I never visited, for example. <laughs> so that's definitely going to be important going forward. And also thinking about the diversity of people contributing to the magazine, diversity of people being featured in the magazine and they, these kind of things. So we, we are absolutely thinking about those things and uh, not trying to make uh, representation only about Helsinki or Finland or Scandinavia. Where can listeners go and find their very own copy? We're going to be distributed in many of the local record shops, for example, in London, and also through Antenna Books, we're going to find lots of bookshops that are stocking our copies. But I, I think if, if you're kind of clueless about where to find information, you can always go to We Jazz Records Bandcamp and just you know send us a message if you can't find the magazine, for example. 
Thank you, Meili and Matty Neves. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And before we go, let me play one of my favorite Christmas number ones of all time. Spice Girls, Two Become One. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Come a little bit closer, baby. Get it on, get it on. Cause tonight...